Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 66, The Emperor Strikes Back. Justinian II was only 26 when he lost his throne. Like his father and grandfather before him, he had begun to rule while a very young man, and had been determined to earn his place in history through vigorous action. So while the shock of usurpation and the figurative and literal scars of mutilation might have broken an older man, or at least convinced him to keep quiet, Justinian was having none of it. His birthright had been stolen, but perhaps time was on his side. As the ship carrying him away to his place of exile pulled out of the harbour of Constantinople, it's tempting to guess that the young ex-emperor was already plotting his return. The city of Cherson, on the southern tip of the Crimean Peninsula, grew from a Greek colony established in the 6th century BC. It had long been in the Roman orbit, and by Byzantine times was seen as one of the last civilised places one could comfortably banish someone to. Surrounded by the Black Sea on one side, and some Gothic tribes on the other, there wasn't much trouble for an exile to cause. The inhabitants of the city were loyal supporters of the government in Constantinople, but proud of their practical independence. They had acted as jailers before, and been proud to welcome Pope Martin when Constance II had sent him there. We get a sense of the quality of life in Cherson from one of Pope Martin's letters. He asks his friend to send him some bread, because he claims that in Cherson it is talked of, but has never been seen. Justinian II was quite the celebrity arrival, and was probably a much sought-after dinner guest once he'd settled in. He was also a figure of pity, of course, and an abbot named Kiros was apparently very kind to this wounded refugee. Over the course of the next decade, Justinian made a strong circle of friends. Doubtless some were drawn by his talk of one day regaining the throne. There must have been young men growing up in Cherson with no future to look forward to, for whom tales of the palace would have been completely intoxicating. When news arrived that Leontius, the general, had been overthrown, Justinian's circle celebrated wildly. Over the next few years, the cloak of caution fell from the exile, and he began to openly discuss how he might return to power. 
He was, after all, the legitimate monarch. Absimar had no right to rule. It became obvious to the senior men of Cherson that Justinian was now a potential danger to their quiet independence. Meetings were held at which it was discussed whether the ex-emperor should be put on a boat and sent back to Constantinople for the new emperor to deal with, or if it would be better to just kill him right now and put an end to any potential sedition. However, in a small community like Cherson, the whirl of rumour reached Justinian before the governing council had agreed what to do. The now 30-year-old emperor was done leaving his fate in other men's hands. When night came, he slipped out of the city with his core supporters and headed northeast into the lands of the Crimean Goths. Justinian's disfigurement was both a hindrance and a help when on the run. On the one hand, avoiding detection was impossible if someone knew who they were looking for. But on the other, if you were trying to convince a stranger that you were in fact the exiled vice-regent of God, well, it's not likely that you fake those scars for a laugh. The small group made their way safely across the territory of the Goths to a town on the border with the Khazar Khanate. Now you remember the Khazars, don't you? The steppe warriors who had formed a formidable empire north of the Caucasus. Their Khagan had worked with Heraclius during the Persian War, and now the great-great-grandson of Heraclius sent word that he was in desperate need of the aid of the Khagan. We don't know if the sitting Kargan was persuaded by family history or just the delightful possibility that the emperor of the Romans would owe him a thousand favours, but he agreed to welcome the exile to his court. This Kargan was Ibuzir, which is a Hellenized version of his actual name. Justinian's charm glands must have been fit to burst after entering the court of the Khazars, because Ibuzir ended up not only agreeing to support his bid for the throne, but also to marrying him to his sister. It's hard to imagine how this meeting could have gone any better for Justinian, though as John Julius Norwich comments, the lady's first impression of her new husband are perhaps, fortunately, not recorded. But despite his disfigurements, Justinian and his new bride seem to have shared genuine affection. When they married, she was given a Roman name to ease her path to empresshood, and her husband chose for her the only name it could be, Theodora. Justinian and Theodora, together with their entourage, were settled in Phanagoria, which is on the coast just opposite the Crimea. They were to set up home there until the Kargan could decide how best to set about returning them to the imperial palace. Of course, as soon as Justinian flew the coop, the leaders of Cherson had sent letters on the first ship to Constantinople explaining the situation to Absimar, the admiral. The Vasilefs kept an eye on the situation, and when he learnt where Justinian was, he wrote several letters to the Kargan. In them, he pointed out the obvious. You and I have bigger fish to fry. Are we really going to fall out over this dangerous criminal? Send him to me, dead or alive, and I will send you 
the finest presents my treasury has to offer. The Kargan, realising the expense involved in supporting Justinian versus the free money he'd be sent if he did the opposite, decided for the latter. But by now, months had passed, and his sister was pregnant with the exile's baby. And I did just make him a number of promises in public, so... Hmm. The Kargan needed to deal with things tactfully, so he sent word to Papitzis, one of his ministers, and Balgitsis, the governor down in Paphlagonia, to establish a new bodyguard for the emperor. Then... When word came, they should make it look like an accident. When the troops surrounded Justinian's home, he was told that it was to protect him from the Khazar people, who, for some reason or another, might want to do him harm. However, a servant in the service of Theodora's brother passed on the news of what their real intentions were, and Theodora loyally informed her husband. As he had been in Cherson, Justinian was well known in Paphlagonia and was on very good terms with Papitzis. The minister came round to visit his friend and Justinian welcomed him in. Once the pleasantries were over, the exile strangled Papitzis to death. There was no turning back now. Justinian called for Balgitzis to visit him too and taking the governor by surprise brought his life to a slow writhing end as well. Understandably, Theodora wanted to stay behind with her people for now, but Justinian had to flee again. He slipped out of the house with a few loyal friends and jumped into the nearest fishing boat and pushed off into the Black Sea. The fishing boat wasn't going to get them very far, though, and the small group arrived hungry and desperate outside Cherson a few days later. A couple of his companions slipped into the city to look for friends and supplies. They were successful, and returned with allies and a proper ship. With the Khazars out of the picture, Justinian knew that his next best option were the Bulgars. Perhaps they would supply him with the army that could return him to his throne. His group set sail, steering well clear of Cherson, out into the Black Sea. Those waters, though, are prone to sudden violent storms, and one whipped up as the boat passed somewhere near the entrance to the Dnieper River. As Justinian's companions huddled together, fearing the worst, Myaxes, one of the emperor's servants, called out, begging him to make a deal with God. If we should be saved today, and you return to the throne, then promise you won't harm any of the men responsible for your downfall. Bitter from his ordeals, Justinian yelled back above the gale, If I should spare a single one of them, then may God kill me right now. The storm abated. The ship found its way to the Danube, and Justinian knew where to go from there. Dusting himself down once again, the emperor was taken to the Khan of the Bulgars, Turval. Turval had grown up during Justinian's first reign, so needed no introduction. Nor did he have anything to lose by supporting the renegade sovereign. His fledgling state was in constant friction with the empire. To have a friend on the throne who owed you big time 
was a no-brainer. Justinian rested over the winter of 704 and promised the Khan many splendid gifts and a return to the subsidies that his father had agreed to pay 20 years earlier. When spring arrived, the Khan led his army south, with Justinian in tow. It was at this point our narrative ended last week, with Absimar's brother Heraclius being recalled to the capital, and he now led out a force to try and head off the Bulgar invasion. But the two armies took different paths, and Turval managed to sneak by the Roman force and appeared before the walls of Constantinople without resistance. If Justinian was hoping that the guards would welcome him, then he was quickly disabused of that notion. Absimar's men refused to negotiate and hurled abuse at him, including many comments about his appearance. Of all the tight spots he'd been in, this was the narrowest. Turval was no fool. He wasn't going to attempt to storm the walls and be shot to pieces. And all the while his men were eyeing the horizon for the return of Heraclius. Three days passed with knots forming in the exile's stomach. Suddenly, one of the Khan's men appeared, claiming to have discovered something in the vicinity of the Vlachionai Palace. We aren't sure if it was an old disused water pipe, or if it was part of the aqueduct of Valence, which had lain untouched since the siege of 626. Either way, it might lead into the city. Justinian took one look at it and dived into the dank hole himself, accompanied by a few men. Squeezing through the dark, damp tunnel, the emperor pushed his way to the other side and emerged inside the city. Finally, able to pull out his sword and fight, his men overcame the shocked guards and seized control of the Vlachianai palace. Panic swept the city on hearing the news. Absimar the admiral fled, and the soldiers who stayed behind switched their allegiance to their former sovereign. That might seem a convenient turn of events, but we should not forget that many in the city did support Justinian. He had been the legitimate emperor only ten years before. His mother, Anastasia, still lived there, and many of the palace officials and guards would have known him since he was a boy. It's only natural that Absimar would have doubted their loyalties and assumed that Justinian's appearance inside the city walls would lead to his downfall. The city awoke to the news that they had a new, old emperor. The exile walked through the streets with onlookers gawping at the sight of him, but he didn't care. All his efforts and indignities were over. He entered the palace and took back his birthright. It was now time for vengeance. Absimar was tracked down and dragged back to the capital, while Justinian must have been thrilled to discover that Leontius was still in his monastery. Both men were bound in chains and paraded through the streets to the Hippodrome. There the crowd were encouraged to jeer and heckle them before they were taken up to the imperial box, where Justinian could watch the races with one foot on each man. This was sweet. When the games were over, both men were taken away and decapitated. Absimar was still middle-aged and had done an adequate job of ruling the empire for seven years. It's doubtful he could have done much to stop the Arabs taking Carthage, but to lead a rebellion just after its loss was treacherous stuff. 
of course Justinian wasn't done there. He ordered the army still out in Thrace to hand over Heraclius and his senior officers, which they did. Some of the empire's most experienced military men were executed and their bodies hung out to dry as a warning to all those who might think of betraying their sovereign again. Speaking of which, the patriarch Callinicus had not only colluded in overthrowing the emperor in the first place, but had then crowned Absamar after his coup. Justinian had him blinded and exiled to Rome, perhaps as a warning to the pontiff. Some people, though, were very pleased to have the emperor back, because they were about to reap the rewards of their loyalty. The Bulgar Khan Turval had waited patiently outside the walls and was now invited in. A gathering of the city's notables were forced to kneel in his presence and hail him as Caesar as Justinian draped a royal cloak around his barbarian shoulders. That title was the highest honour short of emperor and it was seen as fairly scandalous to give such a dignity to a non-Roman but practically it carried no other authority. Turville was then weighed down with gold, silver, weapons and silk for his men, and sent on his way. Justinian then sent ships across the Black Sea to fetch more of his friends. From Cherson came the abbot Kiros, the one who attended to him on his arrival. He was given the ultimate promotion, to Patriarch of Constantinople. While from Caesarea... Theodora and her infant son Tiberius were reunited with their husband and father. Justinian had sent some warships to fetch her, fearful of the Kargan's feelings about him. But Ibuzir was receiving the benefits of his initial scheme without having gone to any expense, and so gladly dispatched his sister and nephew. Again, the elite of Constantinople looked on with contempt at the first barbarian empress of Rome, as Justinian crowned her himself in the Hagia Sophia. Then his half-Khazar son was proclaimed as the actual Caesar. But of course this all fit the narrative nicely, as those same sneers had followed the original Justinian's elevation of the original Theodora. I think we'll pause the narrative there for this week and deal with Justinian's second reign in the next episode. As you know from our seven emperors situation, his second reign is not going to be a long one. But at this moment, it only seems right to leave the now 36-year-old emperor happy for once in the palace. You may have noticed that I haven't discussed the sources for today's incredible story until now, I decided to save it till last so as not to spoil one of the most dramatic tales in all of Roman history. The first thing we have to ask is, who was the source for the story of Justinian's escape from exile? The only people who could have known all of those details were the emperor himself and his closest friends. So, did Justinian really strangle two men to death with his bare hands? We don't know. Presumably, like many good stories, it grew in the telling. We know that he made his way to the Khazar court and then to the Balkans, so there's no doubting his persuasiveness or his determination, but I can't guarantee much else. Then our source problems swing the other way. 
because Theophanes and Nicephorus report that Justinian was mad with a lust for vengeance. Not only did he hang Heraclius, but he had his whole army butchered. Not only did he take revenge on those who'd wronged him, but he slaughtered scores of high-ranking men and women. He invited some to dinner and had them hacked down at the table. Others he tied up in sacks and tossed into the sea. In fact, he sent a fleet of 70,000 men to pick up his wife, and the whole lot of them drowned in a storm. It all seems like ridiculous exaggeration when examined closely, and it seems to come from a source who knew the emperor personally and hated him. The depiction of his second reign is coloured by these tales, and historians ever since have been trying to pass through them. For example, one of those who survived his apparent bloodlust was the son of Absimar. We know that he was forced into the service of the church, and a few decades later he reappears in the histories as a prominent bishop. If the emperor was slaughtering his real and imagined enemies, he seems like an odd individual to overlook. The record of his other policies, as we'll see next week, doesn't look like the CV of a madman. It's understandable, if regrettable, that he would have had to put to death the senior officers of the previous regime. But considering his life experience so far, he would have been foolish not to. And it would have been easy for Justinian to, say, dismiss his marriage to Theodora, given the Cargan's betrayal. But his commitment to her seems like the action of a man in full control of his faculties. Anyway, we can look into that more next week, as we also meet two more of our seven emperors. I'd like to say another quick thank you to all of you who've taken the time to review the show on iTunes. It really does make a big difference to the success of the podcast. And an even bigger thank you, of course, to those who've given donations. Contact me as ever at thehistoryofbyzantium at gmail.com or on Twitter or on the Facebook page. Thanks for listening. 